So we've kind of been toggling back and forth in this section between problem and solution or, or you know, diagnosis and cure. And what's interesting is there are a couple things. If we could talk about the diagnosis or the problem for a while, but, but I want to zero in on a couple things regarding the cure because that's sort of where we ended in 9, 1 through 7. What we found is again and again in chapters 1 through 12, when it comes down to what is God going to do about this, or if for those of you who are here the very first week, the big picture question of all of Isaiah, how does the unfaithful city, the, the city that Isaiah calls a harlot, how does she become the faithful city of Isaiah 66? Because that's how it ends. That's how the book ends. How do we get there? Um, in Isaiah 1 through 12, this initial section, it's kind of playing with that question. And so the cure comes down to a couple of things, um, but it centers really on one big one. Uh, the big one, of course, is in, and, and this is right what we just came out of in 9, 1 to 7, the big, the big answer to the question, the ultimate answer to the question, is God's going to send his, his Messiah. And if you think about Isaiah, and you think about the passages that are the most um, well-known to you, that are maybe the most precious to you, you're probably thinking of Isaiah 7, the virgin birth, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53. And we'll have to talk about how 53 fits with 9, because they're very different, very different portrayals of the Messiah. But nonetheless, they're both of the Messiah. So the big answer to the question, this sort of meta-cure, is, is God's Messiah. But, but underneath that, there are a couple other things we could say that are also really relevant in, the, in these chapters, and really relevant through the whole book, which is that in the midst of God's work of destruction, he's actually going to preserve a remnant of his people. So there's all this judgment in Isaiah, but one of the things that you see, if you look carefully at the judgment, and we just saw this in chapter 8, actually, is that this is a great judgment passage in Isaiah 8, but there's this, like, there's this small group within it. So, so you kind of look at it from 40,000 feet, and it looks like everybody's being destroyed. But then what Isaiah does is he sort of zooms in and says, well, everybody's being destroyed, but God's preserving his people. And that's a really helpful perspective. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just call that remnant. And what is the remnant? What characterizes the remnant? Um, what characterizes the remnant is these are people who look forward to the Messiah or look to the Messiah. It's not, in this case, it's forward. But um, they look to the Messiah and they're, so they're, they're, they're I'll say, Christ-centered. That's just the word for Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. They're Christ-centered, but they're also um, they're also Bible people. They're they they faith, they're faithful to the Word of God. So remember that that great line. One of my favorite lines, really, in the whole in the whole uh, book of Isaiah. In Isaiah eight, they're they're going. All these people are going to inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. You know. Why are we suffering? Why, is, why are things going so badly for us? So let's go to the mediums. Let's ask the dead. And, 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 and Isaiah has this great kind of cry in, in verse 20. I love this. To the teaching and to the testimony. And, and, and he looks at the mediums and says, if they're not going to speak according to the word of God, it's because they have nothing to say to you. So, so it's, always, it's always to the word of God. 
And this is a good metric for us because um, our, our place in redemptive history is different from Judah in Isaiah's day. But, but these, interestingly enough, if you read the New Testament, particularly look at Paul's ministry, again and again when Paul describes what he's doing in his missionary work, or even in his preaching, he goes back to Isaiah. So although we're not in the same place, this is really what it's always about. Um, because remember what Paul does, like when he talks about preaching, he, he says, um, how can they hear without a preacher in Romans 10? And then, and then he quotes from Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the ones who bring good news. Or when Paul says, I desire to go where Christ has not been named, he, he quotes from Isaiah because here's what I'm called to do. So, so I, it's, not, it's not inappropriate for us to draw a kind of roadmap for, for what it means to, to live as God's people from the book of Isaiah, even though we're not in the same place. Okay, we're never going to get to chapter 9 if I keep going. <laughs> so, in chapter 9, we've just gotten through this messianic section. And that's the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is God's going to defeat the enemies. Remember, there's like this 4-4-4 four, four, four in Hebrew, ki-ki-ki. And it's very odd because it's, you know, the battle, blood, and then baby. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's just very strange. I mean, we're used to it, but it's, 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 it's a weird progression. It's all going to center on this baby. All right, so what do we have here beginning in verse 8? Well, if you remember back in chapter 7, um, the Lord sends Isaiah to the king, to Ahaz. And Ahaz is really worried about Samaria. And, um, and, and then these northern tribes, um, and, and then even further north of Damascus. He looks at his map, and he sees them building up strength, and he knows they're coming for him, and that's what he's afraid of. That's what keeps him awake at night. And Isaiah comes to him, offering a word of comfort from the Lord, but he doesn't want it. Um, he, the Lord says, ask for a sign. I'm telling you that you don't have to worry about the northern tribes and ask for a sign, but he won't do it. He won't ask for a sign. So it's a great, it's a great, a great kind of window into his unfaithfulness. And then the Lord says, well, I'm going to give you a sign. And it's going to be the virgin birth, but it's going to happen after all this has taken place. Okay. So, so now we're looking at Samaria. So that north, north of where Isaiah is ministering. And, and the question we want to ask, first of all, in verses 8 through 12, is um, why... What's the root? Samaria is going to fall. And God's already said that. Samaria is going to fall. You don't have to worry about them. And now he's going to tell more about them, but he's going to explain why. Because here's the thing. I'm going to draw my map. I, I know it's, 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 I shouldn't do this. But, um, the, 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 you know, we've got our, we've got our, um, you know, Israel here. And, and, and this is, this is the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the Nile. You should recognize that, right? Um, so, so, so here we are, and, and Samaria, Samaria is sort of up north, um, right here, and they're, they're down here in Jerusalem, again, it's not, this isn't just scale, and, um, and, 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 and so here's what happens throughout the whole book of Isaiah from this point forward, that they're always wondering about the north, and they're going to actually see that those northern tribes fall. In fact, remember chapter 9 begins with that? Galilee of the Gentiles is where the Son is going to minister 
and the light's going to dawn. And that's because Galilee is going to get taken over. And, and what Isaiah is going to constantly do to the people, it's like if you, if you have a, if, it's like if you grew up with someone and then you see them, you know, take the wrong path. And you're kind of always looking at them and going, I, I remember watching what happened to them. And that's what's happening here with Judah. Isaiah constantly kind of points them to their brother Israel or their brother Samaria and says, look, that's the other alternative. And look what happened to them. So Samaria is always at the forefront of their thinking because Samaria is going to get taken over. And there's a reason why. So pay attention to the reason why. This is 8 through 12 of chapter 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. That's northern kingdom. That's my you know, little northern section there. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So you've got the Philistines down here. You got the you know all, there are always people up here, um, and and the Lord says they're both going to come after them. The question is why. If we're supposed to learn something from this, what's their problem that we're supposed to learn from according to this text? What, what what's the root of their crisis? What's the root of their the Lord's opposition to them? Is it in their pride and in their arrogance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. If you were to use one word to describe it, it would be pride. Now, their pride has worked out, he says, in a couple different ways. First of all, they thought that they weren't going to get defeated, and they did. And maybe even more important to that, they didn't look to the Lord when they should have. So they, 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 they didn't turn to the Lord. They thought they were strong. And then it gets worse because here's what happens. And you've seen this with people in your own life. Maybe you've even seen it yourself. When the Lord defeats them, here's their answer. Well, we'll just, we'll just build stronger next time. Like next time we'll sin better. And we'll sin in a way that protects us from being caught. That's their answer. Their answer isn't, you know, we're going to turn to the Lord. Their answer is, Oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna do the same thing again. But and this is what it means when it says the bricks have fallen, but we'll build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. So, in other words, we sinned and were judged, but we didn't learn the lesson. That what we learned was let's just do it better next time. And so, if we do it better next time, then the same thing won't happen. And it's ridiculous when you read it. Because what the Lord says is, no, you've got enemies on the east, you've got enemies on the west, and they're coming at you. And I'm going to let them come at you. You can't escape. There's nowhere for you to look for help. Whichever direction you turn, they're, they're closing in on you. And, and so, but it's pride, really. It's just another symptom of pride. And it's, this is a good reminder for us because pride hits us in so many different ways. The most basic way is you think you can live apart from God, that you're, you know, you sort of forget that you're a contingent being, that you're a creature. And, and, um, and so you think you live apart from God, and then you think you can live apart from God's word, 
that that doesn't really matter that much. And then, and then, and then pride also pops up when God actually judges you, and you think, well, maybe I just do it better next time. I mean, there's just mul- a multiplicity of ways that pride can attack us. But that's it. That's their issue. So, so um, then he turns from Samaria to talking about them as Israel, the northern kingdom itself. The people did not, this is 13, the people did not turn back, tur- did not turn to him who struck them. That, that, see, this is a question. If you get judged by God and you know that it's, it's your own fault, it's your own sin, this, you brought this on yourself, here's, here's the right way to respond. The right way to respond is to say, I'm going to stop and I'm going to turn to the Lord. Now, it's not what your impulse is going to, it's not what your nature is going to tell you to do. You're going to try to, you know, manage it and figure it out and, and you know, mitigate the damage. And that's what you're going to, but, that, but that's not what the Bible tells you to do. And that's not what they did. They didn't turn to him who struck them. That's what they should have done. Nor inquire of the Lord of hosts, you know, back to my, my favorite verse in chapter 8, to the, to the teaching, to the testimony. They didn't do that. Instead, they, they just kept going in their own way. So, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, so boom, lopped them off. The prophet who teaches is the tail, boom, lopped them off. Now this is devastating in the prophets. Um, it's the worst thing that can happen to a people. It's the worst thing that can happen to you. Um, the, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you, um, is that the Lord in his judgment actually doesn't continue to confront you with his word. So, like, if you reach a place where you aren't hearing the word of God, and you aren't paying attention to the word of God, that's not your independence from God. That's God's judgment on you. Because what happens when you are listening to the word of God and opening the word of God and reading it yourself is, is God works and confronts you. And that's good. And you want to escape that sometimes, but it's really good. And so the prophets being cut off is just devastating for the people. Because that means they're never going to know the answer. They're never going to have light shed on them. It's like being in the very you know, middle of a dark cave and somebody takes the last light away. Now what? Now, now you, you, you have no hope of getting out because you don't have anything to go on. And that's, that's really where they are. They don't know that that's where they are. God's telling them, but that is where they are. That's where, that's where, um, that's what Paul describes in Romans 1 about the world. As people reject the revelation of God by nature, since the creation of the world, that's what we do. Um, God's judgment is reflected in their continued not seeing the light. And, and, and so this is, this is Israel at this point. It's very sad. Uh, Verse 16, because those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, has no compassion on their fathers and fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So normally in the Bible, one of the things that God always says about himself is that he has compassion on the fatherless and the widow. He just does because that's who he is. But in this case, it's so bad he doesn't even he doesn't even care. 
He doesn't even have compassion on their fatherless and widows, who really should be, um, you know, in a sense, there's no innocent parties here, but they're, they're kind of the innocent party. They're not the leaders. They're not the prophets. They're not, they're just, they're just suffering. But, but you know, what happens when, when a, a culture or a family or an individual turns away from God is that, is that everybody suffers. And, and actually the people who are most vulnerable suffer the most. Even if you would say, like, morally they're the least culpable. But they still suffer the most. And, and that's, that's, that's Israel, which is shocking, right? This isn't Assyria. He's going to talk about Assyria later and Babylon later and the Philistines later. But he's talking about Israel here. Um, what's, the, what's the dynamic here? What's spiritually going on? In our lives when this happens well verses 18 through um, 18 and 19 really uh, describe it for us and then and then 20 and 21 sort of show how it plays out in history wickedness burns like a fire it consumes briars and thorns it kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke uh, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire no one spares another. And, you know, it's uh, in, in, God, in God's mysterious providence, um, the way he often brings about judgment on people is just by allowing their sin to continue. I, I, it, it can't be emphasized enough. The best thing that can happen to you when you're, when you're sinning, the, by far the best thing, is you're caught, you're confronted, you, 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 the word of God changed. That's the best thing. It's, a, it's hard in the moment, but that's the best thing. The worst thing, and this is, this is chapter 9, the worst thing is you just get to keep doing it. Because what happens then is it just consumes everything. And it consumes everyone. That's actually the judgment of God. Um, Hebrews says, you know, sometimes we talk about the warning passages in Hebrews, but there's a really... There's a, there's a passage in Hebrews that doesn't get included with the warning passages, but I think it's, it's a devastating one, where um, Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And, and if you were to kind of invert that and, and try to think through the logic of it, you'd say, well, if, if I'm not disciplined by God for my sin, that's not good. That's really not good. That's a great warning. Because that's really a good thing. So, so this is what happened to Israel. So that continues um, all the way through uh, really 10.4. Um, you can read about what the leaders did. You can read about how they didn't care about their people. And, and, and they just have no escape. Uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 10. Um, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? It's, um, it's, it's, it reminds me of Jesus' very you know, probing question. Rhetorical question, but probing nonetheless. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. That's that's a little bit like what Isaiah is asking. What exact what is the end game here? You 
you sin, you grow wealthy, but then the day of destruction comes. And, and explain to me how that's going to play out in your life. Like explain what the, what the end game is for the way you're, you're, uh, you're going. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, and, 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 you know, it's a necessary question. When Jesus taught his disciples to preach, um, and we get a little window into this in, the, in Acts 10, because Peter says he commanded us to preach to the people, and then he tells the content of their sermons, that he is the one appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all men must give an account. That's point one of their sermons, according to Jesus. Point two is he offers forgiveness of sins for those who believe in his name, as the law and the prophets testify. But, but point one is really this point. Like, you, you're going to face Jesus Christ as your judge. Or you're, you're go, there's going to be a day of punishment, to use Isaiah's language. And what, what's your plan for the day of punishment? Um, who, who are you going to turn to? Who's going to have benefit from everything you've done? And the answer is, you have no one to turn to, and no one's going to benefit, and that's it. It's the day of punishment. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no way out. Nothing remains. Verse four. But to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain, for all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. That's Samaria and Israel. That's the northern kingdom. Now, he turns his attention then at in the not middle, but in verse five of chapter ten to Assyria. And I you know there are there are really there are really two issues with Assyria, and, and I'll summarize it and then maybe pick out some verses. The, the issue with Assyria is that number one, Assyria is just as bad as Samaria and Israel, so they need to be destroyed. And, and, and all the things that you'd say against Israel that he just said would be said against Assyria and more, um, because Assyria is just first. Well, they never knew the Lord, but they but they turned on on everything God gave them. So they're, 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 in that sense, worthy of judgment. But what God's going to do, and, and Isaiah wrestles with this, and the people who hear his sermons wrestle with it um, a lot, is that God's going to use the Assyrians to judge Israel. Now, now, now when I say Israel, I want to be careful because I'm not, this is Judah, right, down here, and this is Israel. It's, it's really a bad map. But, but north and south are at least right. Um, and, so, um, and so God's going to actually use the Assyrian army to come in and, and finally take out Israel. Now they're also going to get very close to taking out Judah. But, you know, a story for later in Isaiah, they don't actually get Jerusalem. But they come close so, so the Assyrians are both, this is the tension. The Assyrians are both the, the, almost the, the ultimate bad guys, but also the instrument that God's going to use to judge his people and to bring about their destruction. So, so that's both of those things are going on in this chapter where God's sort of saying, here's what I'm going to do to Assyria, but also here's what I'm, how I'm going to use Assyria. 
to judge you. So look at what he calls them in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So in other words, you see these Assyrians coming with their swords and just destroying, and, and the Lord's saying, I'm doing that through the Assyrians. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But this is interesting. Look at, look at what he says next. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders kings? Is not Kalmel like Carchemish? Harmoth like Arpads, Samaria like Damascus, as my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? So basically, what he says is, I'm using the Assyrians to destroy all these people. That's not how, that's not what they think is going on. What they think is going on is that their gods are more powerful than the other gods, and that they're just going to sweep right through. That's how they're thinking of it, but I'm using them for an entirely different Reason I'm using them to bring judgment on my people. Um, but don't worry, because, verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, Syria, and the boastful look in his eyes. Because, and here's, so, so, so um, when I asked earlier, what was Samaria's problem? Jonathan's like, pride, it's pride, that's right. But look at this, look at, what's the Assyrian problem? Well, the, listen to what the Assyrian king says. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or chirped. The Assyrian king is saying, you see all this? I did it. It's, uh, it, it, it's almost exactly what Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, says. Remember that story in, in, in Daniel 4 where he says um, he's walking along the walls, which are, which are amazing, by the way, which you can still see. I mean, brought them over to put them in the Berlin Museum. It's just stunning. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's walking along these walls and he says, is this not Babylon the Great, which I with my hands have built? So it's like he's looking at the construction project. And, and you know, the, the, the scary part is, you probably said things like this, or thought things like this. Like, I did it. Like, I accomplished my goal. I, 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 I did what I set out to do. This is great. I accomplished it. And so we all have a little Assyrian king in us um, and that's, that's, you know, saying these things. But actually, when God hears that, He's not happy because he said, this is exactly what I'm going to judge him. It's, it's ultimately pride. And what he does with Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is he strikes him down and he eats grass like with, with the cattle for seven years. But the Assyrian is just destroyed for this. The Assyrian king. Um, and, and look at, and, and, and think about this. When, you're, when your little Assyrian king pops up, think about these verses in Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe... Boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify himself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff 
should lift him who is not wood. So in other words, like, you're, you're an instrument. You're, you're a tool that God uses, that he picks up to, to use to do whatever it is that he has you to do. And it might be to, to build a business or to, you know, preach a sermon or to, you know, whatever it is, whatever you're called to do. But, but and it's good that you're doing it. it it's good. But, but you're actually, actually God's doing it. Um, I, I quoted this verse in the earlier service and I'll, I'll quote it again. So you'll hear it two, maybe three times today. Um, what do we have that we did not receive? Um, Paul says. And, and so, so when you're tempted to say, I did it. Um, you gotta, you gotta say, no, wait a minute. Actually, the Lord used me to do it. And sometimes I know like it's cumbersome to say that, but, but at least has to be our mindset. Um, that this is, I'm just, I'm just a creature. Uh, created beings every beat of our heart is contingent and, and if you look at the world you, you know this it's just contingency all the way down to the bottom and that includes us we're on that scale and and so that's what he says they're just an instrument a Syri- the Assyrian army as great as it is is just an instrument it's like an axe that lo- the Lord decided to use one day he just well, I'll use that picked up that axe chopped down a tree well it's not the axe didn't really do much this is this is the Lord who wielded it, and the Assyrian king, of course, doesn't recognize that. We tend not to recognize that. Um, so actually, what's going to happen is the Lord of Hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of the fire. Uh, Look at verse 18. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so so few that a child can write them down. And you know, it actually is exactly the way it happens in Assyria. Because there's... Because actually, we see it happen in this book. The, the, the Assyrians are really powerful but they don't last that long. They're, they're the most powerful in this, you know, in the, in the ancient world, in this part of the Mediterranean, but, but they, you know, they, there's an, actually, while they're away, there's, there are other tribal people that are forming to, to usurp them, and they do. Um, and so, it, it's all very short-lived. It's all, it's like what Ecclesiastes says, um, well, our translations say something like meaningless, meaningless, but, but actually Ecclesiastes says it's like the merest breath. It's just, that's it. It's just poof. That's life. And that's the Assyrian Empire. Um, you, 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 look, you, there's no Assyrian Empire today. It's gone. You don't know anyone who's Assyrian. It's just, it's gone. And it was gone a long time ago. And um, as great as it was. So that's what the Lord's going to do. And now let's at least get let's at least tackle this last part of chapter ten, um, because going back, um, we're toggling between problem and solution, and um, and and the solution's all, always here, but also in the midst of judgment. So as judgment is coming, uh, there's always this remnant, and the remnant is. Messiah-centered and focused on the Word of God. 
And that's what we get in verse 20. It's the exact, that's the, that's the term. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. And Paul quotes this, by the way. This is Paul's whole framework for understanding the Old Testament. Um, Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, to those of you who are going to live through the Assyrian um, army's attacks, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. My anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rod of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And it goes on to describe what's going to happen Look at verse 33. The Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will be cut down to the thickets of the forest. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Now, just a little. So, so, so what are you supposed to do if you're a remnant person? If you're a, if you're a Messiah, word of God person? Well, one thing is when the Assyrian army comes through. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's going to be bad. But don't worry, because this is all, the Lord is doing this, he's sovereignly planning. And, and, actually, this is chapter 11. I love the imagery here. Out of this stump, this remnant, like, the, you know, the tree's chopped down, but the stump is still there, and that's the remnant. Out of this stump, a little shoot is going to come up. And that shoot is going to be um, going to become a branch. And that branch is going to bear great fruit. And that's, that's the, the next messianic text in, um, in, in Isaiah. That it's actually, um, you know, if you think about the messianic text in Isaiah 1 to 12, you've got seven, which is a little bit hard to understand, but, you know, this virgin birth doesn't, it's not super clear that it's the Messiah, but it kind of has to be once you get to the end. And then in 9, it's definitely the Messiah. There will be no more gloom for whom for her who lived in darkness. Um, and then here, this is, but this is actually the image, the label. that like the, This is the bumper sticker that's put on the Messiah's uh, uh, um, messianic passages. That, that it's this righteous branch that comes up from the stump that's left over. Let me read it to you. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor decide with equity for the meek of the earth And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Well, let me just say, 
couple things about this. One, um, if you look at the imagery of Jesus, particularly in the book of Revelation, what you'll find is that uh, the vast majority of it is just lifted from this description in Isaiah. So everything that's being described here is picked up on later. But the second thing I want you to note is this. What's his focus? What, what, is it, what characterizes him? I think what, what you would say is what characterizes him in this description uh, is number one, the ministry of the Spirit through him. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of truth will rest upon him. And then also, did you notice how prominent the fear of the Lord was? I've said it before in here. It's the most common phrase to describe believers in the Old Testament. It's really kind of what it means to be a believer in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord. And, and if there's one thing that's going to characterize the Messiah, it's the work of the Spirit through him and the fear of the Lord in him. Um, now, you could try to put this together with chapter 9 and say, well, it also said he was mighty God. And that's true. I mean, he's God, the God-man. This doesn't highlight that. This highlights really his humanity. And, and it highlights in his humanity this, this, the spirit-filled nature of it and the, um, and the fear of the Lord that characterizes everything that, um, that he did. And, 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 and so that, you know, we just keep, there's a sense in which we keep repeating some of these same themes, but just coming at them in different ways because we're back to that. That's the ultimate solution. So when we put all of it together, we put all of it together, um, what this text has told us, what this couple of chapters tells us is, first of all, what, you know, what the Lord hates, uh, what he's going to judge, what that judgment looks like and consists of, what you should do if you're in the midst of the judgment of God, whether you're being judged because of your wickedness or whether you're faithful, but you're just suffering because everybody else is being judged. It tells you, gives you instruction for both of those scenarios. And then it also ultimately points you to, to, to the, the, the real solution to all of this. It's the solution in Isaiah's day. It's the solution in, um, in our day too. And, and it, it underscores, I think, what the people of Judah were rejecting. I mean, they really were rejecting Christ. Um, they were rejecting God's word. They were rejecting God's provision. They were rejecting God's discipline. But they're ultimately rejecting God's Messiah. And that's, that's the dividing line throughout the whole Bible um, from the beginning of it to the end. Now, that's just a really broad overview. I'm conscious of that, but um, any questions or comments or anything like that at the end? We didn't really give Chuck time for that throughout. Anything particular to add? Yes? You know what's interesting is you see the, these two kinds of people. It's yeah. either God's people that yeah. are enlightened by the Spirit yeah. or those who have been left in darkness. Yeah. So when you have a family member that kind of stands outside of that. Yeah. How do you recommend entering a conversation, you know, and kind of engaging? Because every level that you enter in, there's it's a, not going to see it. Real and they see you as a either an enemy or a mm -hmm. one who's judging them. And, right. and you see them as outside of the covenant and mm -hmm. not enlightened. And it's like, it's hard to be able to engage. And, and where do you start? Yeah, I mean, I think so, so much of that ends up being knowing the situation and discerning the person. I mean, yeah. I think in an ultimate sense, it's not wrong to ask some of the hard questions that Isaiah asks. Like, what do you, what, 
how do you see the day of judgment? But I, but sometimes that's not what we can lead yeah, with because of all the baggage and, yeah. and history that goes along with that. Yeah. So, but I, but I mean, ultimately, you want to kind of get there. Yeah. I think another way, though, to sort of get to those ultimate questions: what what, what is it? Who is it that you say that I am? Jesus yeah. asks, or what does a prophet a man? You know, those kind of rhetorical yeah. questions. You want to get there, but sometimes you have to play the long game in getting there. And and some and what the long game looks like is. They're going to watch you face situations. And it's important for you to be facing them in a way that's biblical. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that does, I think, tend over time, now again, long game, <coughs> over time, to enable questions of more ultimate and eternal significance to kind of arise to the surface. Because then you might not have to be challenging them with, what are you going to do with the Day of Judgment? But, mm-hmm. but you might have opportunities to testify, look, this is why this is why we're navigating this situation in this way because because really our ultimate hope um, in life and in death is is the Lord and what he's done for us and that's why we can live with confidence in the midst of this diagnosis or so I think that that's usually the way it works out I think you always want to keep in mind that those ultimate questions and eternal questions are the ones that Jesus gets to the one that Isaiah gets to the ones that you want to get to but but you have to negotiate that and, and sort of yeah. navigate that well. And one way to do that is just to make sure that you're really clear as you're facing things. And that's going to, mm-hmm. perhaps over time. Yeah, but it's, it's like you said, you see them taking that turn and you just know where it's going to go. Absolutely. What the consequences are and you're just going, I know what the answer is. But I know. I know. No, and I've had people that I've sat down with and said, I, are you? I mean, are you done saying that? Uh, this is really, because this isn't just, this isn't playing out well. And um, yeah, it's really sad to watch. Anyway, I know that's not a, I don't think there's a math I think formula the for all that. questions are a good, good way to start. You know, this, then, why are you doing this? Yeah. If you think this, then. Yeah, or even, this is why I'm do I'm not doing this because of this. Yeah, I know. that's hard. It is. All right. Pray, Lord. Thank you for this day. We're, we're very conscious that the depths of your word are, are, are ones that we have we have barely scratched the surface of. But thank you for it, and and we pray that we would continue to dig deeply into your word to reflect uh, and to and to devote our lives really to that task. So make us people who love your word and who put you first. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Amen.